I invite you to open your Bibles with me, please, to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1, it's on page 260 in the Pew Bible. If you'd like to use that as we walk through God's Word together this morning. Aren't you thankful for the privilege of being able to sing together? I hope you are. It is a gift to the church to be able to sing. You know, singing is an essential part of the Christian life. Because it's a means not only by which we express our praise to God, but it's also the means by which we can comfort one another. Uh, Singing scripture-based songs sustains us particularly in the difficult seasons of life. That song there was co-authored with City Light and Tim Chowley shortly after Tim unexpectedly lost his son in college. Uh, Sandra McCracken, who sang this with City Light, was abandoned by her husband years ago, and then he ended up abandoning the faith altogether. So the ones who write these songs, and many of the ones who sing these songs, it is born out of their own suffering. This is not just, uh, you know, uh, uh, intellectual um, conveyance of truth. This is something that many of these people have walked through themselves, and they have seen in their own lives, based on the truth of Scripture, that the Lord is with them at all times in the highs and in the lows and in every season of life. And and these songs are a gift to the church. And that's why Paul exhorts the church in Colossians 3.16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the idea is, but just don't keep it there. Because out uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and the mouth sings. So he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. Let's remember that when we sing, it's not about how good your voice is. It's about how good our God is. So let's not hold back. Let's, let's sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God to praise Him and also to comfort one another. For the last year, and it's hard to believe it's been a year already, we've been studying the life of David, who himself was a singer and a songwriter, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And David testified in his most famous psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Because you are with me. And it may have been David who prayed in Psalm 71, don't discard me, Lord, in my old age. Don't abandon me when my strength is failing. That prayer is rooted in God's promise that he would not forsake. Just as we pray, your kingdom come, knowing that God's kingdom will come, our prayer are based confidently on the promises of our faithful God. By the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 1, David, the mighty warrior, the mighty king of Israel, has grown old and frail. And yet as David nears the end of his earthly pilgrimage, he continues to experience, even in his old age, even in his impaired condition, the faithful presence and promises of God. 
This doesn't appear to be the case at the start of the chapter, but it is undeniably evident by the end of the chapter. There, the aged king of Israel is not only uh, there in his bed, his literal deathbed, but also there with him is the king of the ages. The king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. First Kings 1 begins this way. Now King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, they, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, literally in your bosom that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. When uh, I was pastoring years ago, my previous church in Massachusetts, we had an elderly sister in Christ who was very energetic and very outspoken. She was well into her 80s, and she would come up to me constantly and let me know her opinion on something, and she would say, I'm old and I'm bold. (laughs) Well, King David at this point in his life is old and he's cold. (laughs) No matter how much they covered him, it didn't do any good. And so they conducted a nationwide search. We could call it a nationwide beauty pageant, if you will, and they found a beautiful young woman named Abishag to to look to his needs and also to lie in his arms. There's a debate whether she was intended to be more than just a helper to David. Was she to be a wife or a concubine to him? And there's a debate among commentators, but I tend to lean on the side that she was intended to uh, bring some more vitality back to the king. I don't know why they would search the whole nation for the most beautiful woman they could find just so David could have an attractive hot water bottle, if you will. (laughs) But we read that the king had no sexual relations with her. And I think it's significant that this is pointed out because we're like, man, what happened to this once passionate lover? We think of David's affair with Bathsheba. And while that was completely inappropriate, very clearly uh, David had a very strong sex drive. He was a very passionate man in whatever he did. And yet this once passionate lover has no interest in sex. The mighty warrior who, who slew giants, who conquered kingdoms, who killed lions and bears with his bare hands is now old and feeble. He's impotent and frail. And sadly, when David was in this state, late in life, advanced in years, one of his sons sought to advance himself. Look at verses 5 to 10. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? 
He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. Let me just pause there to say, uh, Adonijah was the fourth son of David, so Amnon was the oldest son. You might remember that he was dead by this point because he had been murdered years ago by Absalom after Amnon had raped his half-sister Tamar. We don't know what happened to the second son, Kiliab. He's, He's not mentioned anymore in Scripture, and in all likelihood, he died young. Absalom was the third son who by this point, as you know, is now dead, killed by Joab when, when Absalom tried to conspire against David and seize the throne. And now we read about Adonijah, the fourth son, who, like his brother Absalom once did, attempts to seize the throne. Continuing on, in verse 7 we read, Adonijah conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Rei, and David's mighty men, were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. One commentator notes on this section that Adonijah should have been with his dying father, but instead he was up to no good. He was following in the footsteps of his brother Absalom, who also promoted himself, you might remember, and also prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. This is like history repeating itself. Right after telling us about these self-advancing actions of Adonijah, the narrator goes on to say in verse 6, look at it again, that his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, what are you doing? Why have you done such and such? As we have seen that while David was a man after God's own heart, that does not mean by any stretch that David was perfect. David was a very flawed man. Just like You and I are flawed today. And David was almost the epitome of a permissive parent. It says, never once did he reprimand his son. Never once did he call him to account. Never at any time did he displease him. Because you know when you discipline your children, you displease them. They don't like to be disciplined. It's not pleasant at the time, but painful, the Bible says. But afterwards it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. But Adonijah was spoiled rotten. David was a permissive parent, and Adonijah turned out to be a spoiled, pompous, self-centered man. He was good-looking on the outside, but he was just ugly on the inside. And let this be a warning to moms and dads. Permissive parenting doesn't make your children love you more. It makes your children love themselves more. The Lord wouldn't discard David in his old age, but Adonijah had no problem doing so. Adonijah surrounded himself with yes-men, a people who would tell him what he wanted to hear, not what he needed to hear, and that's why he didn't invite Nathan the prophet and others to the coronation ceremony, which 
ironically, was held, did you catch it, at the serpent's stone. What an appropriate place given this diabolical, slithering move on the part of Adonijah. Satan, of course, was cast down from heaven for exalting himself against God. And here Adonijah puts himself first. He doesn't respect the leaders that God has placed over him. He doesn't seek godly counsel, but he puts himself first. It's all about Adonijah and what he wants. And sadly, there are people like that in God's kingdom today as represented in the local church. You might remember uh, the Apostle John in his third letter writes to believers saying, I wrote something to the church, and this had to do with supporting missionaries and and, uh, what they could do to encourage them on their way. John says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. Tony Merida writes, leadership isn't about giftedness so much as it is about Christ-likeness. And that's why there are such high qualifications, not perfection, but high qualifications to serve as pastors, as shepherds, as elders in the church because we're not to lord it over the flock, but to be an example to the flock. We read some of those qualifications this morning in our scripture reading. We're going to be studying them more as we enter the book of 1 Timothy. Chapter 3 in that epistle spells out character qualities that ought to characterize those who lead the church. Tony Merida then writes, let's be careful in appointing people to leadership. We should put more stock in their true character than in their ability in external appearance. So we see that a lot of the ones who supported Adonijah made the same mistake that a lot of the ones who supported Absalom. You know, good looking on the outside, probably a real people person, uh, had certain gifts and abilities that really inspired and motivated others and could gain a following, but they considered the external of the man rather than the internal of the man. But character counts. It counts with God and it should count with us. Well, Adonijah was all about self-advancement, but his scheme was overridden by God's sovereign appointment. This is verses 11 to 40, which I'm going to read without a break. Just read straight through, and then we'll sum it up with a few comments. 1 Kings 1, beginning in verse 11. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord the king, do not know it. 
He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon your servant he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Absalom will be counted offenders. Which means, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fat and cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benai the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then king David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. They came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Joida, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelophites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gion. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. What we see here in this section, and there could be a lot of things said. Wish I could say them all. But one thing we see throughout this section is God's sovereignty working through human agency. Adonijah's power play is reported and resolved by those loyal to King David and to the Lord. And even eventually David himself. But no one plays a more critical role than the prophet Nathan who wants what's best for the kingdom. Now we know that Nathan is David's lifelong friend, 
But, da- but Nathan has already proven that he is first and foremost the Lord's servant. And the Lord had promised David that Solomon would be the one to succeed him as king. Solomon would be the one to sit on the throne. So Nathan works with Bathsheba to bring this matter to David's attention so that everything is confirmed in the mouths of two or three witnesses. Bathsheba goes first, and then Nathan follows her. Bathsheba brings this matter to David's attention, and respectfully, she reminds David of his promise that Solomon would be king. And of course, David's promise was based on the Lord's promise that Solomon would be king. And then Bathsheba informs David, and now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, don't know it. Once again, we see David's frailty. Uh, David is not only impotent, he's not only powerless and frail, he lies on his bed, but he's also ignorant. This is the king who had once been praised as having wisdom like the angel of God that knew everything that was going on in the land. Do you remember that? And now he doesn't have a clue what's been going on, even though his son has made himself king. The situation is serious, and it's extremely urgent, because not only is the kingdom as a whole in jeopardy, but David's own wife Bathsheba and his son Solomon, their very lives are at stake. Bathsheba closes her appeal by saying, And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you. I thought of the eyes of Texas are upon you, right? I wonder if they got that idea from this. The eyes of all Israel are on you. And that means like David, you are in the position to make a critical decision in this critical moment and no one can make it but you. She is respectfully laying upon David his personal responsibility, the fact that he is still king and that privilege, that position comes with a responsibility and he must this very moment take decisive action. It's time for David to act. Then Nathan comes in and confirms Bathsheba's report and then encourages David by letting him know that there are still people, good people that are standing with David at this critical hour. They include Zadok the priest, Benaiah, who is the captain of the royal guard. But most importantly, the Lord himself is with David. So in the midst of his impotence, his ignorance, and his impaired condition, David clings to the Lord's promise and proves it by publicly declaring Solomon as his successor. David says, and I quote, He shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. I love Benaiah, that mighty warrior, one of David's mighty men, the captain of the royal guard. Army commander says, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, so declare it or so decree it. As the Lord was with my Lord the King, so may he be with Solomon to make his throne even greater than the throne of my Lord King David. You know what Benaiah's name means? It means the Lord will build. David, I know that your son Adonijah has conspired against you just like Absalom, but you know what? The Lord will build his kingdom. And God will be faithful to his promises. And what you declare God has decreed 
and may the Lord make it so. And I wish Solomon that as great as your leadership was, as great as your kingdom was, may he exceed even the greatness of your own reign. And this pronouncement by David is followed by a magnificent coronation. All the people exclaim, long live King Solomon. And the celebration is so intense, the narrator says that the earth was split by their noise. Well, I thought scripture says that the earth will split once again when Christ Jesus, the King of Kings, returns to earth with a magnificent that defies the imagination. Scripture says everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. It says every eye will see him. The celebration of God's people on that day will make Solomon's coronation look like a toddler's birthday party. The prophet Zechariah declared, On that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem, and the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. The NIV application commentary says God's salvation will transform the heavens and the earth. There will be a new creation. This day will bring a supply of living water to the entire world. And the climax will be God's kingship over all the earth with his name honored exclusively. End quote. John Woodhouse writes, quote, The crowds following Solomon into Jerusalem were on the right side of history. Why? Because God's promise will determine the future. Strangely, that does not exclude human activity. Those who believed God's promise, such as Nathan, Bathsheba, and David, did not passively wait around for God's promise to be realized. They acted boldly, carefully, emphatically for what God had promised. That is what faith is like, and it puts you on the right side of history. Faith in Jesus Christ means believing God's promise. The kingdom of the son of David will be forever. Are you on the right side of history? End quote. And this takes us to the third and final portion of our text and the last point of the sermon, the settled arrangement, verses 41 to 53. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it, heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And Adonijah said, Come in, for you're a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benai the son of Jehoiada, and the Carathites and the Pelophites, David's royal bodyguard. And they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the whole city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. 
So he arose and went, took of the horns, took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, and behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hair shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Now who's calling the shots? In one defining moment, Adonijah goes from feasting to fearing for his life. What caused this 180-degree turn? Reality. Reality. You see, up to this point, Adonijah imagined himself to be king, but he, in fact, was not king. He thought that he was calling the shots. He thought he had put all the pieces in place. He thought that he was in control, but he was dead wrong And now he was forced to deal with it. And he did so by taking hold of the horns of the altar. These horns protruded from the four corners on top of the altar of sacrifice. The priest would slaughter the sacrificial animal on the altar and then sprinkle its blood on those four horns at the four corners. Psalm 118.27 says, The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. From this verse, we gather that that the priest would, would bind the sacrificial animal with cords or ropes to the horns so that he could kill it. This may on the surface seem like a cruel thing to do, but God had a purpose in this ritual. It was to show the people the awfulness of their sin, and that they deserved to die. And yet God, in his mercy, allowed an animal to be sacrificed as their substitute. Since the altar was a place of mercy for penitent sinners, grasping the horns of the altar became a way of seeking asylum at this place of mercy, even though this ritual was not prescribed in the Old Testament law, this ritual of grabbing the horns of the altar in the hopes of being shown mercy. (laughs) The man who had arrogantly exalted himself saying, I will be king, now clings desperately to the horns of the altar in fear for his life. Verse 50 says, Adonijah feared Solomon. He didn't fear him before. Why now? What made the difference? Reality. Or more specifically, Adonijah's recognition of reality. He realized in this moment that Solomon was king, not he. And that his life was actually now in Solomon's hands. Adonijah had no alternative but to beg for mercy. This historical account in 1 Kings 1 illustrates a far greater reality and a shadow of things to come. This text teaches all of us a vital lesson we must not miss. It's a lesson that transcends time and culture. And that is this. Rebel sinners stand in need of mercy from the rightful king. 
rebel sinners stand in need of mercy from the rightful king. And you know who that rightful king is, I hope. It's Jesus. And the Bible teaches us in so many words that we are all naturally Adonijah's at heart. We have all rebelled against the king of kings. The scripture says we have turned everyone to his own way instead of doing life God's way. Instead of exalting him and making much of Jesus, we have exalted ourselves and made much of ourselves. Instead of pursuing his glory and honoring him, we have pursued our own pleasures and done what we wanted to do. As the one song goes, I did it my way. And yet King Jesus did something for us that Solomon never did or could do for Adonijah. This king went to the cross and offered himself as the perfect and complete sacrifice for the sins of the world. The sacrifice to which all the thousands upon thousands of sacrifices in the Old Testament era pointed. The four horns to which the priest tied each limb of the lamb represented Jesus' death on the cross where he was bound by nails because of our sins. But it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love for us and his love for God the Father who sent his son on this mission of mercy for rebel sinners like you and me. so that we might receive his mercy instead of justice. And so we read in Philippians 2, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mark this down. Sooner or later, every human being will bow before God's king. There is one king, and his name is Jesus. And only those who have truly, from the heart, embraced Jesus as their Savior King will receive mercy and be on the right side, not only of history, but on the right side of eternity. Now, we went through that text pretty fast, much faster than I would have liked. But I hope that we'll take some thoughts with us as we come to the Lord's table, as we transition to observing the Lord's Supper this morning. I want to leave you with three words in light of this text that we have encountered these last few moments. I want to begin with a word of comfort. A word of comfort. And we all need this word of comfort, even the kids do, because the fact is, we're all aging. And unless we're alive when the Lord returns, which could be a possibility, we all, like David, will grow old and die. 
And when we lie on our deathbed and we look back on our lives, it will dawn on us just how quickly life has passed us by. We will appreciate in perhaps a fresh way the scripture that says our life is but a vapor. We're soon gone and we fly away. You're thinking, Pastor Matt, I thought this was a word of comfort. It is. Because as we look back on our lives, even the best lives, we will realize that we haven't lived up to all our aspirations. We won't have accomplished all that we wanted to. We won't have been sold out for Christ the way we wanted to. We'll all have regrets and failures in mind. But here's what we need to remember and what brings us comfort. Your identity is not bound up in your accomplishments. Your identity is not bound up in your giftedness, all the things that you did do, all the things that you can do. Your identity is caught up in who God made you to be in Christ. It is not what you bring to the table, so to speak. It's what God has set before you on his table. God sets before you a life-giving relationship with the king of all creation. God sets on his table the way of forgiveness, the way of life, the way of reconciliation with himself. One author writes, what should give us great joy in our living and in our dying and in our relationship with God is our relationship with God through Christ. You want great joy in living, great joy in dying? Find your identity in your relationship with Christ. When David had nothing left but the promises and the presence of God, they were enough. The Lord was enough. And the Lord assures his people in Isaiah 46, 4, listen to this. I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you and I will care for you. I will carry you along and save you. Could there be more comforting words in all of scripture? But let me move now to a word of caution. First of all, regarding others. Don't be impressed by outward appearances. Make sure that you judge people based on their character, not on their looks, their skills, or giftedness. But most of all, this should be a caution or a warning regarding ourselves. Remember the passage that Brother Paul read earlier. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so in light of what Adonijah did, we might like to think of ourselves as humble, but the proof is in the pudding. And as we look at Adonijah's actions, we're faced to ask the same questions of ourselves. So let me ask them to you. Do you respect the leaders that God has placed over you? Or do you always have to be the one in charge? Always have to be the one in the limelight. All the one, always have to be in the one control, barking out orders, telling people what to do, the one getting all the attention. Do you consider others to be more significant than yourself? That's what 
Paul says in the context of Philippians 2, he says, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let each of you think of others as more significant yourselves. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Do you surround yourself with people who tell you what you need to hear rather than people who simply tell you what you want to hear? Sometimes we want to voice our opinion or criticize leaders or, or uh, express our discontent over certain decisions or the way things are, or circumstances, what have you. And we'll go to certain people because they know, well, they're not going to say anything to me. They'll say, yeah, can you believe that? But I'm not going to go to so-and-so, so-and-so, or so-and-so because they'll call me on it. They'll confront me the way Nathan confronted David. And so there are certain people that I surround myself with. There's other people that I'll avoid based on how it suits my self-advancement, my priorities, the things that I want out of this situation. Pride is so ugly, and yet it is so subtle. Be on your guard against it. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Let the Lord exalt you. Don't exalt yourself. You won't wind up anywhere good. Interestingly, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 16, 5, and I wonder if he had Adonijah in mind. He said, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. They will not go unpunished. So humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. He resists their proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, the hand of the almighty God, that he may exalt you in his time, in his way, for his glory. I've shared you briefly a word of comfort and a word of caution. But undergirding both of those words is the greatest word of all, and that is the word of the cross the word of the cross. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Earlier we talked about the horns of the altar. The Hebrew word for horn is karen, which can refer to an, an animal horn. It can refer to an instrument, and it often signifies strength. I read an illustration from a Christian publication this past week that I want to share with you. It says, most of us have seen a buck with antlers, which are kind of like its horns. When an eight or more point antler rack circles the head of a deer, it appears as its crown. The buck's points represent not only his age, but also his strength, his dignity, his majesty. The Hebrew word for horn, karen, is the origin of our English word crown. In ancient times, a crown was made of horns, and the pointed tips of the crowns we're familiar with today represents those horns. The Roman guards pressed on Jesus' head, not a crown of horns, but a crown of thorns. They did this not only to torture him, but to mock him as the supposed king of Israel. But in the book of Revelation, at the end of human history, when all is said and done, 
we see Jesus wearing many crowns, many diadems, because he is king of kings and lord of lords, and he is the one who is called faithful and true. Make sure that you're on the right side of history and on the right side of eternity by trusting in Christ.